Welcome here. My name is Matt, a pastor here of Tri-City. If you are new here with us, a special welcome to you. Uh, as Jenna said, we'd love for you to be able to uh, connect in with what's going on, uh, grab a connect card, ask some questions, and uh, kind of after the gathering, we'll hopefully have some time uh, for that. Um, you may know that uh, we've been going through a series through different songs in the Christmas story, and that's what we're going to do as well today. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 22 to 35. And uh, you also uh, have seen that we're in a season of, uh, of Advent. Uh, we've, we've lit a candle, we're having readings every week, and the season of Advent is one where we are uh, anticipating the second coming of Jesus, and also we're remembering the time of waiting of God's people. Uh, God's people have been waiting on God for, for many, many years before the Christmas story, and so we're remembering that uh, God's people tend to be a people that wait on him. Um, this morning we're meeting a man named Simeon, and uh, he was indeed waiting uh, very faithfully on God. But the truth of the matter, I think, just as we kind of begin, is that it's very difficult to wait for any long period of time, uh, I think. Even if you're waiting on something that is a sure thing, uh, even if it's something that you, you know is going to happen, uh, if you're waiting for a while, we tend uh, to get distracted, we tend to lose heart. Uh, for those who are waiting on God, it can very often be the case that we get caught up in the things that are happening right now, even though we know that there is maybe a glorious truth to come. And so this, this week I came across a, uh, a web post that I think, I think illustrates this rather well. This is from Babylon B, which is a uh, Christian uh, satirical website. I don't know if you know those exist, but they do. There's at least one of them. And uh, here's the post. Uh, the title said this, uh, Come quickly, Lord, but please, not before the last Jedi comes out. Uh, the text read as follows, Lord, we know that you promised you would return to us in the twinkling of an eye, bringing on the final period of judgment and at long last establishing your reign of justice upon the earth. Oh Lord, how we long for that day. Please come quickly, Lord. But just not before the last Jedi comes out. Not before we finally find out what Luke was up to, held up in that cave for many years. Please not before we get to see if Rey succumbs to the dark side and if Kylo Ren finally manages to find redemption. These are things that occupy our heart and minds right now. I haven't seen the movie. I'm not going to spoil anything. But I think it does tend to illustrate sometimes how we live our lives. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're a believer, uh, you know that Scripture says Jesus will return, that it will be a great day. There'll be all the promises of God will, will come to fruition. And yet we tend to get caught up in our everyday life, in the things that maybe are not that important, but seem very important. Uh, Simeon, he wasn't waiting like this. Simeon was waiting faithfully. He, he was very focused in his waiting, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, uh, we're going to see in our text that, that he was a devout man of God. He really loved God, he really trusted him, and so he was faithfully waiting. He wasn't just going through the motions. But the second reason that Simeon was really waiting with a, a particular focus is that God had told him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah, which is pretty amazing. I mean, the Bible is clear that the prophecy was there. God's people were waiting, but here the Spirit of God came and revealed to Simeon. We don't know when exactly, we don't know exactly how, but that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. So you can imagine, day in, day out, he said, this, this could be the day, right? For us, we don't know if it's even going to happen in our lifetime. He knew. And in our text, we're going to see the culmination of his waiting, the, the day that he actually sees the child Jesus, and, and it all comes to fruition, not just for him, but for all of God's people. 
And so we're going to focus this morning again on the words that he speaks in response. He speaks in verse, kind of a a song, but we're also going to look a bit at the context. Uh, So we're going to begin in verse 22. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can read along or just listen as I'm going to read from God's word. Uh, Let's begin with verse 22. It says this, And when the time came for their purification, this is Mary and Joseph, uh, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ." And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's God's word to us this morning. Let's pause in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you again for your word. Uh, Thank you, God, that as we gather here, uh, we know that we... Uh, can hear not just from, uh, from the wisdom of man, but from the wisdom of God. And so I pray, God, that that would be the case. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have ears to hear what you're saying. I pray, Lord, that we would come to a greater understanding of, of your salvation and uh, what it means, Jesus, that you came and you came to bring comfort to us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here at the uh, end of Simeon's Waiting, uh, we find uh, it's accompanied by another revelation from God. So he's in the spirit of God and he speaks words uh, that really talk about the nature of the Messiah. Uh, He doesn't just talk about kind of who Jesus is, but also the salvation that he brings. And so it's to that that we're going to look this morning. The nature of of the Messiah as a comforter and of his salvation. What it means to be truly comforted in the salvation of God. So two points, two insights that we see about Jesus. Number one, uh, Jesus is God's comfort to all peoples. And secondly, Jesus reveals each person's heart. So those two things are going to guide our time. We'll start with number one. Uh, Jesus is God's comfort to all peoples. Why why did I choose comfort as the word? Well, uh, if you look in the the setup, verse 25, you'll see it on the screen. This is talking about Simeon, but we see what it is that he's waiting for. So it says there was a man uh, whose name was Simeon, and he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The word consolation obviously means to console, to bring comfort. When there's someone in pain, someone in, in trial and difficulty, someone in your life that has something going on, we, we want to console them. We want to bring some sort of comfort, which really means uh, not just that we want to say nice things, but we really want to bring some real help, an answer to whatever they are going through. We know this uh, because we know that our world is such that there's a lot of pain, there's suffering, there's there's things that people are going through and we want to help them. Uh, we, we long for comfort because our world is still racked with sin. 
And the same was true for the Jewish people at this point in time. All through the Old Testament, they had been longing for the comfort of God. They, they wanted help from him. If you know the, the, the history of Israel, there are many times where they cried out to God. In fact, there's a whole book where they are really longing for the comfort of God. It's called Lamentations. And here we have just a, a passage to see kind of their heart towards God. Uh, this, is, this is kind of speaking on behalf of all the people of Israel. And it says this at Lamentations 1, uh, verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, and yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. So you see there the, the angst, the, the turmoil that, that Israel was in. But do you notice the origin of their trouble? It says there that they had been very rebellious. See, it was their own straying from God that had led them into a place of, of great discomfort and distress. It was their own sin that brought them to this place of, of sorrow and desperation. And that's the same truth for us. Every one of us as individuals, as a, as a community, even as, as humanity, we, we all are in a place of distress and, and trial because we have turned our backs on God. That's, that's the effect of sin in the world. Now, the Jews, they, they longed for the comfort of God uh, because they knew that he had promised to bring them comfort. They were waiting for an answer because there was a promised one who would come to deliver them. This is the Messiah, the anointed one. They even had a word in Hebrew that, that means the comforter. That word is the Menachem. He is the one who would bring comfort. And I can say that because I had French immersion training. And so that sound that you heard is by virtue of our school system. So you're welcome for that. The Menachem, that's the one who would bring comfort. Okay, this is, what, this is who Simeon was waiting for. He wanted the Messiah to come. God had told him, you're going to see the Messiah. He was longing for the comfort on behalf of his people, even as an individual. And as I said, I, I think we know what that's like. We know what it means to be in our own lives in a point of such distress that we, we want some sort of consolation. And I think we know even what it's like when there's people in our lives and, and they're, they're hurting, uh, they're, they're, they're broken, maybe there's a relationship that's broken down. Maybe there's some sort of anxiety that they're going through. There's maybe even physical distress, and we, we desperately want to console them. And yet we feel like we have no power to actually make things better. You know, I think the, that, that feeling of, I, I'm saying words that I, I, I want you to feel better, but I can't actually solve the problem. I don't, have, I don't have the power. I don't have the wisdom. See, real comfort Real consolation, it always brings with it an actual answer, a remedy to the issue, to the root of the problem. It's the difference between uh, pain medication, right, like Tylenol that might deal with some of the pain, or antibiotics. See, antibiotics, they, they actually deal with the problem, which is an infection. And so as soon as we get antibiotics, we think, oh, now things will get better. In three days, I will feel fantastic. I won't have to deal with the symptoms anymore because the root issue has been dealt with. The root issue that we see throughout Scripture for all of humanity is sin. And the comforter from God is the one who will come and deal with sin. And his name is Jesus. Now, the amazing thing about Jesus is that he brings genuine comfort. We see this throughout his ministry. And sometimes he brings genuine comfort, and it's frustrating for those he's dealing with because they want temporary help. They want to feel better right away, but Jesus, he has lasting comfort to bring. 
And one story that came to mind, I think that illustrates this well, is uh, when Lazarus dies. If you know the story, uh, Jesus has a friend named Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus has a sisters, Mary and Martha. They're all friends with Jesus. And Jesus is doing ministry in one area, and Lazarus is very sick, kind of a, a town or two over. And so Mary and Martha, they, they come to see him. They, they tell him, hey, Jesus, Lazarus is ill. I mean, he's very sick. He's probably going to die. We need help. And what they expect is that Jesus would, would go and help him. Because, I mean, everywhere Jesus goes, he heals people. People he doesn't even know. And this is his buddy. This is Lazarus. And so they expect that he would get up and go. But he doesn't. And it's very perplexing. Here's, here's what it says in the book of John, just about how Jesus receives this. It says this, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And you can imagine everyone saying, did he not hear what, what happened? Like Lazarus, he's, he's honestly really sick, Jesus. Like, I don't know if you know, but he, we need to go. You need to go and help him or he's going to die. But he doesn't go. He stays there because he loves them, which is an interesting language, the way that it's described. In fact, Jesus stays so long that he tells them, Lazarus, he's died. He's dead. And you can, can you imagine being there? Well, yeah, you didn't go. You didn't help him. Of course he's dead. Well, when Jesus does go, he brings a comfort, but again, it's a surprising one. I'm going to read from uh, John 11. This is just, listen to this interaction. This is when Jesus comes. Uh, Martha's there, Mary's there, and uh, you'll see it on the screen. Uh, here's what it says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And then Jesus goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, not in the future, See, Mary was trying to gain some comfort by the fact that she believed that we would one day be raised from the dead. Jesus says, no, no, don't hope in that future comfort, hope in me. See, Jesus used this opportunity to reveal a greater comfort, and that comfort is that he's not just there to, to heal and to prolong life, he, he came to bring new life. And he didn't just come to stave off death, he came to conquer death. And so in that in that resurrection, what he's demonstrating to them is not a temporary help, but a lasting comfort. It's a foreshadow of what he will do for them on the cross, that he will provide a way for them to have true and lasting life. This is what it means to bring genuine comfort for sin, because sin leads to death. It's the just penalty for sin, and yet Jesus is the one who died in our place. And so the comfort that he brings is one where we can look to the future and know that we have a hope in spite of ourselves that goes off into eternity. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. That's what he did. That's who the Menachem is, the one who brings comfort. And so Simeon, as he sees Jesus, the child, in the arms of Mary and Joseph, he, he comes and he, he grabs him. He grabs him kind of like the Lion King, holds him up, right? And he speaks these words of affirmation. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation. This child, he, he doesn't know exactly how, I'm sure, but he knows that through this child, there will be a genuine answer to the problem of sin, genuine comfort, the consolation of Israel. Now, this is the hope of Christmas. 
This is, this is the reason we have to rejoice. But the interesting thing is that at this moment, this is not actually anything new for Mary and Joseph. And yet, if you look at their response, they're astounded, right? The response that they have to this is, it says in the text that they marveled, which is sort of surprising because we've already seen a reference in Mary's song that, that the Savior will come through her child. We saw it, Mary sang about it, Zechariah sang about it, he talked about the horn of God's salvation. The angels, we're going to look at that uh, next week at Christmas Eve. When they come to the shepherds, they talk about the Savior of the world. This isn't actually anything new, and yet Mary and Joseph, the language really is they're astonished. And so you have to wonder, like, why are they so surprised at that moment? It could be just that they're, I mean, it's a marvelous thing, again, to be reminded of, but I think there's something else going on. And if we look at exactly what Simeon says, there's a new revelation there that they wouldn't have known about that is astounding. Here's what it is. Here are the words of of Simeon. Again, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the salvation of God, this child. But salvation for who? Or maybe whom? For whom? It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. It's for those who are not Jewish. Now, for Mary and Joseph, this would have blown their mind again. They're a young, faithful Jewish couple. We've seen in our text, they've come to the temple to do all the things that the faithful Jewish couple would do, to come and be purified after childbirth. Jesus is their Jewish son. He is the Messiah come to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel. And so for them now to hear that he isn't just going to bring comfort to the Jews, but also to everyone who is not Jewish, this would have been unfathomable. I mean, for us, it's hard to understand because I think for the most part, we're Gentiles here. I know I am. I'm a Greek, so I'm definitely Gentile. But for you probably also, there's not that many who are of Jewish lineage, even in the church the world over at this point in time, most of us are not Jewish. And so we hear this and we think, well, of course. Of course, we look around, that's, that's who the church is. That's who Christians are. But at this moment of time, this would have been a huge shock. And a shock for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, see, the Gentiles, they had not been waiting for anyone. The Jewish people were the ones who were waiting. And, and if you know what it's like to be waiting for something, and then someone who hasn't even, I mean, for someone to cut in line, you know what I mean? Imagine that, like... I don't know if you've been to New York, but there is a booth in Times Square called the TKTS booth, and that is where you get same-day discount Broadway show tickets. And if you want one of the big shows, like right now, one of the biggest shows is Hamilton. If you want tickets to Hamilton, you need to get there probably at 5 in the morning, and you wait until showtime. So you wait about 12 hours. Uh, There are people with lawn chairs. There are professional line sitters. They pay them to wait in line so that you don't have to be there for 12 hours. Imagine that you waited 12 hours. And you get to the ticket booth. And amazingly, there are tickets there for you. Oh, praise God. You've been praying all day. You get tickets to Hamilton. And then in the very same moment, the ticket person uh, just reaches out and gives some tickets to someone walking by. And you'd be like, they didn't even want to go to the show. They weren't waiting. We've been waiting here the whole time. This doesn't seem fair. That's kind of what it's like. They they would look around. I mean, they were right there at the Temple Mount. There were Jews and Gentiles all over the place. They would say, these guys haven't been waiting for the Messiah. They don't even know that they need a Messiah. Why, why God, would you come and bring light to them? So the first reason is simply that it, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem to make sense. But there's another reason, a deeper reason why this would have shocked them. And it's simply that the Gentiles and the Jews, they were not buddies. 
In fact, for all of the history of the nation of Israel, it has been uh, Gentile nations that have brought uh, violence and, and oppression and corruption into the Jewish people. It was Gentile armies that attacked Israel, that besieged Israel, that, that ended up conquering Jerusalem, that brought them off into exile. In fact, at this very moment that this is happening, there is another Gentile army, the army of Rome, that is still keeping them there oppressed. And so for us, it's again difficult for us to put ourselves in that mindset, but if you were to take a modern day example, and this isn't hyperbole, this is actually one for one, exactly what this is saying. Imagine that you were a Jew during World War II. And that in your lifespan, in the last couple years of your life, you have seen the Nazis come into your town and they have wreaked havoc on your culture, on your life. They've, all of your family members, all of your community, they've been stripped of their possessions, of their business. They've been stripped of, of, of clothes and herded onto boxcars and taken to camps where they've been, you've been beaten, you've been worked to death, you've been exterminated. You, you look around and you see nothing but evil and hatred. And you can't believe that God is allowing this to happen. And then in that, in that midst, a prophet of God shows up. Imagine that, on the edge of the camp, like, like at Auschwitz or Dachau, and the prophet of God speaks and reminds them of the comforts of God. Reminds you that as the people of God, God is for you. God promises to bring you comfort, and in the very same breath says, and this comfort is also for the Nazis. This is what's being said here. Your response would be one of disbelief. Lord, how, how could you bring them comfort? Their heart is filled with evil. They persecute your people. Lord, Lord, how can this be true? In this moment, Lord, how can you say you're bringing light into the darkness of the Gentile world? A world where there's idolatry and corruption and violence. Lord, this doesn't seem to make sense. Lord, Lord how could this be true? And God's answer is that it is always in my nature to be gracious. It is always in my nature to forgive those who are in sin. This includes those who are waiting for me, like Simeon, those who've been waiting patiently and faithfully. It includes those who didn't even know that they should be waiting, like the Philippian jailer who's just there in the jail. He's got Paul and he, and he hears the gospel and he's saved. He wasn't waiting for anyone and yet God brings grace into his life. It's even for those who oppose the lordship of Christ, like Saul, who was persecuting God's people and yet in grace, Jesus came and said, you are now part of my people. Experience my grace. This is the radical, even scandalous grace of God that the depth of his love and forgiveness is such that we think this, this can't be true. And yet God says, every one of us has had our back to him. Every one of us has evil in our heart. And we miss the fact that it's it's God's undeserved favor that brings us into relationship with him. And the great thing about this, the, the great, the amazing thing about this is that for us who are the church now, as we look out into the world, the world over, every single person on the planet, regardless of their heritage, regardless of their religion right now, God promises that he has comfort for them. And so as we, as we seek to share the gospel, it's not reserved for a select few. It's for everyone who would see their need for a savior. As they hear the gospel, God says, I, my grace is sufficient for you. Whether you've thought about me or never thought about me or persecuted my people, my love is so expansive that everyone is included, all peoples, all over the world. That's the message of hope of Christmas. That, that we, we're inviting our community because we know that there is a lack of comfort. 
that there's a need, even a need that they don't see. And we know that the depth of God's love is such that anyone who walks through the doors, regardless of what they've done, God says, I I love you still. And that I've sent my son to actually deal with your root issue, which is your sin. And so there's comfort for you. So the very first thing we see here is that Jesus is the comfort of God, the answer, and it's for all peoples, of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and praise God for it, or else we wouldn't be here. Now, the second thing that we see is that Jesus reveals each person's heart. In fact, the comfort of God comes through the revealing of our heart. And we actually see this in, uh, it's kind of a PS that Simeon has. First, he kind of speaks those words of verse, and then Joseph and Mary are kind of shocked, and then he has this word, and it's just to Mary. And this is a, an interesting point because, for one thing, it's the first time that we hear there's anything negative associated with the Messiah. You're going to see in his words that it seems that there's going to be real opposition. That's the first time in, in all of this. Up to this point, there's been angels singing, there's been people rejoicing, it's been amazing, but now we hear a foreshadow that it's not always going to be this way. In fact, instead of uh, Jesus being a point of unification for the people of Israel, he's going to be a part of division, a point of division. The other thing we notice is that these words I'm going to read in a second, um, they are spoken only to Mary. And that's because we don't know exactly what happens to Joseph, but he is deceased by the time that Jesus starts his ministry. We, We don't see him at all. If he had been alive, there would have been some reference to him, and so we don't know what happened. But what we know is that it's Mary who is going to have to endure the pain of seeing the response to her son. And so here's what Simeon says. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Now that parenthesis there, that is him speaking directly to Mary, and and what he's saying is that it's a foreshadow of the pain that she will endure through the cross, through seeing her son crucified. The language is, is striking, it's it's intended that way because this, this child, there's such a great contrast. Imagine her, she's, she's got Jesus in her arms. He, he's someone that she's bonded with him. He, all the promise of Israel is wrapped up in him. And yet, God knows that she will have to go through immense pain in seeing him rejected, seeing him arrested and beaten and crucified. And so this is, I think, a, an opportunity the beginning where she can prepare her heart for what is to come. Because even at this moment, even at this moment of, it's, it's an amazing culmination of waiting for God's people and answer to their prayers and, and the promises of God, even here, the cross is already in view. And so what we see here is that God is not surprised by the negative reaction that many people, many Jewish people had towards Jesus. In fact, we see really clearly that through his ministry, there is, there is a vast reaction. We, we see the division. Some will fall. In the text, right, some will fall, which means to be ruined or lost, and some will rise, which is a word that's often translated as resurrected. And both of those things are connected to their response to Jesus. And we see that he is a sign that is opposed, which means that he will signify something that people hate. And we see this in his ministry, that, that people, people come to hate him. In fact, by the end of his ministry, everyone wants him dead. And when Jesus prepares his disciples for their ministry, this is what he says. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So why? What happened? 
I mean, he's, he's the Messiah everyone has been waiting for. There's angels singing about his birth. It should be great. And then yet by the time of his ministry, there is a real a rejection of who he is. What is it about Jesus that caused such problems? Why did they hate him? The answer is that he was the perfect embodiment of righteousness. He was morally perfect. He was holy. And because of his absolute perfection, they rejected him. Not just because he was good, but because he revealed the evil in their hearts. Do you know what I mean by that? that? That in response to Jesus, the people that came into contact with him, they sensed their own sin. That's what it means when it says in verse 35 that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. That's what Jesus does. He reveals who we are from the inside out. Just as an illustration to help kind of understand this dynamic, uh, I want you to imagine that there is a, a tourist, a guy from America, a Texan, who goes on vacation to Paris. He wants to see the sights. And he has a friend there, a business friend who's a, a Frenchman from Paris. And so they see the sights. They go and see the Louvre. The Louvre is like the, one of the best art museums in all the world. Uh, it takes days to go through. They spend the day there. They see the Mona Lisa, the Statue of David, just amazing works of art. And after that, you know, as they're kind of having a, a croissant or something, um, the, the Frenchman says, well, what did, what did you think of the Louvre? And the guy from Texas says, it was okay. You know, it was it's nothing like, he says, have you been to the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Now that, that is a fine establishment. That is A1. This was okay. Not, I mean, I don't mean to judge, but, I, and the Frenchman says, no, I'm sorry. I won't do the accent. He says, listen, I'm sorry. I think you misunderstand. You weren't here to judge the art. In fact, your response is the art judging you. What he's saying is, these pieces of art, everyone knows that they are the, the prime examples of artistic mastery. And so in your response to that art, it says more about you than it does the Mona Lisa. Right? We don't need you to tell us if the Mona Lisa is great. We know the Mona Lisa is great. What we've discovered, and actually we sort of knew, is that you're an ignorant American. You can't appreciate art. <laughs> right? So we, maybe we didn't need to know. But, but what you see is that's what happens with Jesus. That as people come into contact with him and they respond to him, it says more about them than it does about him. And you see this throughout all his ministry. Now, some people, they, they respond with soft hearts. They, they recognize their sin. You see this in the story of um, the woman at the well. When Jesus speaks to her about, about her sin, he confronts her. She's an adulterer. And yet she goes away and, and seems to desire to sin no more. She has a soft heart towards him. We see this with Zacchaeus as well. He's stolen money from people as a tax collector, and yet an afternoon with Jesus, and he, he repents. He wants to bring restitution. What do we see? We see that within his heart, there's humility, there's repentance. But there are many other people, when they come into contact with Jesus, they don't react that way. They're very hard-hearted. And there's one passage here, I think, that helps us to illustrate this. Um, this is the religious leaders. They are the ones who had the hardest hearts towards Jesus. And as you look at this interaction, I want you to just see how it is they respond to what Jesus does. So this is again from the book of Luke, uh, early on in the ministry of Jesus, and here's what it says. You'll see it on the screen also. Um, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, this is Jesus, and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to, all of, he said to him, 
Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Why would they be furious that he healed? Well, what's revealed is the fact that they, they didn't care about that man at all. They had no compassion. They had no love. What they were focused on was the, the customs that they had set up. Things that God hadn't instituted, but, but they had. And why were they focused on it? Because it ensured their influence and their power. See, as Jesus did his ministry, what was revealed in the hearts of many was hypocrisy, was legalism, a lack of compassion, a lack of love. All of these sins were exposed. And in fact, Jesus didn't leave it there. In his righteousness, he spoke out against their sin. He confronted them in it. Here is him speaking again to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And not surprisingly, they hated him even more. See, we don't like to be caught in our sin. I think we know that. We don't like for our sin to be exposed, and yet it's a good thing for us. It's the point at which we begin to experience the comfort of God. Uh, we're living in an interesting time in our culture right now because um, daily, uh, weekly, we have uh, the exposure of sin. Uh, most of it is to do with sexual assault, uh, uh, people taking advantage, men in particular taking advantage of those women who work with them because they're, they're powerful, they're famous, they have money. And we see that, rightly so, they are being held to account. This is a good thing. They need to be brought to justice. They need to stop doing what they're doing. We want to bring comfort to those who have been hurt. But it's also a good thing for the ones perpetrating the crime because it's an opportunity for them to change, for them to admit their, their sin, we hope, they may come to a place on their knees where they're repentant, where they change their behavior, where they get help. But see, that wouldn't happen unless their sin was exposed. In fact, for many years, it seems that it's been happening all over the place and people haven't brought it to light. But when it is exposed, when our sin comes to light, that's the point where we can, we can deal with it, where hopefully it can be dealt with at the foot of the cross. See, we know this, I think, to be true, but in our own lives, it... It feels different, doesn't it? We are tend to be reluctant when it comes to being vulnerable and sharing the struggles that we have. We, we definitely don't like it when others maybe point out certain inconsistencies in our own life. But, but what we see here is that Jesus, as the comforter, he comes to reveal the thoughts of our hearts, to reveal what's going on inside us. And in fact, we can't actually experience the comfort of God unless we are willing to have our sin exposed. If you're a Christian here and you have experienced any victory over sin in your life, maybe some pattern of sin, maybe it's lust, maybe it's greed or, or selfishness, if you've got victory over that and you're no longer walking in that sin, more than likely it happened because your sin came to light. It's very, very rare that you would keep something like that to yourself and that you would somehow actually gain victory over it. It's, it's almost always the case that it's when you have a conversation with someone. When you, when you confess sin to someone, not, not everyone, I'm not talking on a Sunday morning, getting up, you don't have to do it now, but I'm saying that there's someone in your life that you say, look, this is, this is a struggle for me. Or there's someone who knows you enough to ask you, to, to ask you a question about how things are going. It's always in that context where you're able to then confess and talk about it, bring it to God and receive the comfort because the comfort is that you will not pay the price for that sin. 
regardless of what it is, praise God that you have a, a comforter. You have Jesus who went to the cross on your behalf. And so in the midst of that brokenness, of that sin, you know that there is victory over it because of what Jesus has done. That's the comfort that God brings. And so I think this text is leading us, in the one, in the one hand, simply to appreciate and praise God that Jesus comes to bring us genuine comfort, but also to, to have a point of reflection. I mean, how do we actually react to this kind of thing? What do you do when, when you're reading through the Bible and, and you come to a verse and you feel that, that twinge of conviction where maybe your life isn't matching up to what it says here? Do, do you think maybe God wants you to read another passage that morning? Do, do, you, do you flip on or do you stop for a moment and say, Lord, maybe there's business I need to do here? And what about in your life? Are there even people in your life that, that know you enough that they might be able to see some inconsistencies? And if they, they mention it, are you quick to be defensive? Are you quick to, to point to the excuses you have kind of ready to explain why it's not that big a deal? Or, or do you pause for a moment? Do you say that might be something I need to consider? That I may need to spend some time with God? And, and indeed, are you open? Are you humble and ready to receive the salvation of God? But that, that only happens, you see, if you admit the need for that salvation. And so here we see that the nature of God's comfort is such that it begins on the inside and works itself out. It's not enough simply to, to try to do the things that Christians do. We need to, at our core, have our hearts revealed and come to a place of genuine faith, genuine repentance, so that we receive the comfort that God brings. And I wonder if there are some of us here that are really longing for the comfort of God this morning. And we wonder how might we, we find it well, here we see in our text that, that God's grace, it's always greater than our sin, no matter what it is. And we've seen that his love brings healing even into the most, the most broken life. And we see also that his comfort is for everyone who turns to him in repentance. And praise God for that. As a way of closing, I want to read from 2 Corinthians. This is a passage where it talks about God as the God of all comfort. And so I'm going to read it and, and reflect on it. Then we're going to close. It says this. You'll see it up there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And what it's saying is that there will be sufferings. There will be trials. This side of the second coming of Christ, there will be challenges and difficulties, but we have a comfort. And that comfort is Jesus. And so when there are people in our lives, we don't just have platitudes to give them. We don't just say, oh, I'm, I'm praying for you. I hope it goes better. We don't have words that are empty. We have words that are full of the comfort of God because we can speak about Christ. We can speak about the one who came to suffer on our behalf. At Christmas, it's a time where we have a culture that is celebrating and rejoicing, and yet we know there's a need for comfort. And so as we, as we look to Christmas Eve, as we look to this season, it's an opportune time for us to share about the comfort that we have. And we've gone through difficulties, we've gone through trials, but we have a comforter who knows our pain and who died on our behalf. And so let's, let's move forward with the, the hopeful expectation, God, would you bring someone into my life and give me the courage to share the comfort I have? And Lord, help me to know your comfort even more deeply as I am repentant, as I'm willing to have my heart revealed. And in that, 
we have many, many more reasons to rejoice. So let's pray, and then we're going to respond in, in rejoicing for who God is. Lord God, we are, we are thankful, Lord, for, your, for the truth, Jesus, that you came to bring genuine comfort. We thank you, Lord, for this moment where Simon, your prophet, comes and just proclaims the nature of genuine salvation, which is, which is full of your comfort and consolation, and it comes at the revealing of sin. God, I pray for each one here. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who know you already, Lord, would you help us to, to better understand who we are and the depth of our sin, and God, that your grace is, is greater still. And Lord, if there are those here who don't know your comfort, don't know you as Savior and Lord, I pray, God, that today would be a day where they come and receive genuine comfort. And God, that you would soften their hearts towards yourself as Savior. And I pray also, God, for this season, Lord, would you help us to, to be faithful and, and joyful in sharing the good news we have. We thank you, God, that we have much to rejoice about. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.